Welcome back to University of Minnesota Extension's Nutrient Management Podcast. I'm your host, Paul McDivitt, Communications Specialist here at U of M Extension. Today on the podcast, we're talking about spring nutrient management decisions. We have six members of Extension's nutrient management team. Can you each give us a quick introduction? This is Dan Kaiser, um, Nutrient Management Specialist at the University of Minnesota Extension, located at the St. Paul campus. I am Fabian Fernandez. I'm a nutrient management specialist at the University of Minnesota in the St. Paul campus, and I work primarily on nitrogen management uh, for corn cropping systems and environmental quality. This is Brad Carlson. I'm an extension educator. I work out of our regional office in Mankato. I work statewide on water quality issues with a lot of focus on nitrogen. I'm Chrissy Smoderman. I'm an extension educator out of the Morris office. I focus on manure nutrient management. This is Jeff Vetch. I'm a researcher in, here at the Southern Research and Outreach Center in Waseca. And I'm Lindsay Pease. I'm the nutrient and water management specialist at the Northwest Research and Outreach Center in Crookston. Great. So starting off, what are field conditions looking like around the state? Well, up here in Northwest Minnesota, we had a rapid snow melt here in the past couple of weeks. You know, we had a lot of snow over the winter and I was really surprised, you know, how much of that actually infiltrated into the ground. We do have slightly deeper frost depth than normal here. I've heard some reports that it might be about nine inches at this point, you know, we're at the end of March um, up here. And that gave a lot of space for that uh, snow cover to infiltrate. And on top of that, we had quite a bit of rain last October. So coming off the drought, I know a lot of people are probably pretty worried about what the residual soil moisture is like, but uh, from what I've been seeing up here in the Northwest, we're gonna at least be starting off uh, the growing season with a good amount of moisture in the soil. So this is Jeff and down here at the Southern Research and Outreach Center, we're, we're at currently at about one and a half inches less than normal precip so far for the 2022 uh, or calendar year. Uh, we don't have any tiles flowing. Um, that's primarily because the soil is still frozen from about 10 to 20 inches. Once that frost is gone, a few warm dry days and dry days will allow for field work to begin. Um, but right now there's really not a lot of those warmer dry days in the 10 day forecast. And as far as a, as a moisture status in our soils, I would not be surprised when the frost is gone. We will see some light tile flow, but I, it's definitely not wet. And my situation out here in West Central Minnesota is very similar to what Lindsay talked about right away. We had at least a foot of snow sitting on the ground and then a really fast melt around March 16th to the 20th, something like that. We got up in the 50s and everything was gone in a week. We still have a couple of snow banks hanging around, but most of the snow is gone. That doesn't mean we're done with snow for the year. We know how Minnesota is with that. But I'm hoping fields will dry out you know, quickly once the soils warm up. We're still sitting at soil temps you know, around freezing, 30 to 35 degrees. And so, and I know people are itching to put their manure out. I know that's a, a thing in everyone's mind, but I'm urging you to pump the brakes just a little bit. You want to be able to incorporate that manure into the soil, and you really want to avoid that, all that runoff. The runoff risk advisory forecast sends me a text every morning almost saying there's a high risk of runoff in our area. Maybe pump the brakes on uh, nutrient 
manure applications right now. I might just add one little tidbit. Uh, I got some data out of the Southwest Research and Outreach Center in Lamberton. Uh, it's uh, looking at their, their soil moisture status uh, after nearly record uh, deficits they actually got drier uh, than, than uh, almost than the drought in the 80s there in the middle of summer. Um, they've had, uh, I guess, for the time period above average precip starting about the middle of August, and they are uh, uh, currently almost at field capacity and actually above average as far as uh, soil moisture uh, uh, water in the, the, uh, in the rooting zone uh, right now compared to their long-term average. So uh, the western side of the state, I think, all the way down is actually relatively wet. Yeah, and I've, uh, I have a study there in Lambert and Southwest where uh, we are measuring nitrate leaching and uh, it was kind of interesting because we have uh, a new graduate student that started his project and uh, he had no um, water collection all season long until the very end around in November where we finally started to get a little bit of a, a trickle, not too much, but we did get uh, a couple of measurements late in the fall, which is telling me that the soils finally recharged and uh, and with the, yeah the the snow and the precipitation they they had so far I think that they're steering up in a pretty good place right now. What have you been hearing about fertilizer prices and supplies in Minnesota? Well, I've been doing some calling around. This, of course, has been a pretty hot topic uh, going back all the way till. Uh, towards the end of the growing season last year. So uh, called a couple of different dealers in the last few days. I'm hearing anhydrous prices right in the vicinity of uh, $15.75 per ton. Uh, urea prices right around $975 per ton. 32% uh, is uh, roughly uh, about $750. Um, so the, you know, looking at the anhydrous and the urea price, that puts us right in between 95 cents and $1.05 uh, per pound of, of actual nitrogen. Um, I guess as far as uh, other products, uh, DAP is in the vicinity about $975. And uh, potassium, actually, I've gotten some wide variability on that. Uh, uh, one vendor I talked to said 645, another said 850. I think uh, also been hearing though that because of that product coming out of Canada, the uh, Canadian rail strike has really affected uh, that. And so I think some of that depends on whether they got product in early or not. Um, you know, as far as availability goes, uh, I've, I've really spoken to no one who thinks that's going to be a big problem. I think uh, one of the topics, though, we've been talking about all winter is the fact that dealers are not going to want to incur a lot of risk related to fertilizer inventory and falling prices and the possibility of losing money on fertilizer that they purchased and then had to sell at a lower price. And so I'm still hearing that same message that, that a lot of dealers were fairly conservative with their purchases this winter. And so I'm hearing that the pre-plant applications not going to be a large problem, uh, still strongly encouraging uh, producers to get the fertilizer priced. It's not really very likely you're going to see the price go down. So you might as well 
bite the bullet and get that taken care of. But I am hearing that there still could be some issues relative to the side dress, top dress time, uh, because again, a lot of these uh, dealers were fairly tight on their purchases. And so if you did not pre-book that, uh, there still could be some risk relative to that. How can growers save on fertilizer costs this spring? Well, certainly, I mean, looking at our recommendations, neonitrogen, we're already building our recommendations around economics. So, I mean, it just kind of paying attention to that. And I'll talk about, you know, before we end here today, a little bit of the changes that we're looking at for some of our recommendations. Uh, with, with the other nutrients, uh, I mean, the advantage really is if you've got soil test data, it's a good time to start using it. I mean, if I look at both uh, phosphate whether it's MapDAP or any of the other products that are out there. If you're in a situation where you're above the critical level, so say above 20 part per million Bray phosphorus, we know that, I mean, the, the overall probability you're going to get a response to that nutrient is, is really low. And if you have starter as an option, I mean, that's, you know, something to think about. I mean, I, it's one of the things on the supply side, I know, Brad, I'm assuming they didn't mention anything on starter. So like 1034 at all, you know, whether or not there's any issues in that or not. I think that's all kind of clicking along. I, I think uh, most of the dealers are pretty well up on uh, how much product they go through. It's really only when, when producers start really switching radically from one product to the next that it starts causing a lot of issues. And so, no, I, I didn't really hear, I didn't get a price on that, but uh Likewise, nobody indicated that was going to be an issue this year. So, I mean, that's an option. I mean, starter only if you do have that option, you know, even with as little as about two and a half to three gallons of 1034. Generally, you know, if we look at phosphorus, you're going to see the, the likelihood that if you get a response, if you start getting into some of those higher soil test levels, it's likely going to be the to the first 10 or 20 units. So that's that's generally what we look at, like a two and a half to five gallon 1034 rate. So that option's there. Uh, I mean, there's always that question, and I know that'll come up with growers that are maintaining, what's it going to do to my soil test values? And I mean, certainly there is a risk if you don't apply phosphorus. I mean, on average, you know, generally we're looking at around a two part per million average decrease over time. If you look at yearly decrease over an extended span of time with no phosphorus application. I mean, some of the data, if I go back to some of the studies we've had within the last 10 years, we've been able to maintain, you know, medium to high soil tests with as little as about 40% of crop removal. So I know generally, it, you know, some is better than none. If you're going to get into that situation, it's really the, the situations when it comes to phosphate, you really need to look at are those uh, medium to low and very low, which the low and very low is where you're going to get a pretty high return on your investment. So those are areas I wouldn't cut. I mean, if you can variable rate, then look at some of those other areas and just look at a, a lower rate. Um, you know, if you're looking at a spring application, I would bet though that a lot of the, the acres have been applied already. I mean, there may be a few out there with spring application, especially with phosphate that might be looking at this, but that's one, both that and potash, you're probably looking at, you know, quite a bit of that going on. Potash is kind of the other story. And I don't know right now, um, the last couple of years, we've seen pretty strong uh, responses to it because of the dry conditions. I mean, that's one, if, you know, if I had to make the, the judgment call in a normal year, you'd normally say, well, a lot of our soils are more likely going to be deficient in phosphate, but I think, you know, kind of the opposite's true. So those two, I mean, you can go by soil test. Um, K is going to be one of those ones that um, it, it's just going to be situational, you know, dependent if we get to a wetter year, 
you know, we may see some of the, the availabilities go up um, of that nutrient where we not, may not see a strong response. So those, I mean, looking at them, the easiest ways to go by soil test, um, nitrogen and sulfur, I mean, sulfur, those are the ones since they're mobile, I mean, they're ones that are going to be probably more needed than anything else, but, um, you know, P and K are one of those that I would just, you know, go back to the soil test and just see where you're at with that. And zinc's kind of the same way with micros. I mean, if you're looking at trying to save somewhere because you want to try and invest somewhere, those are, those are at least ones that we can look at some data and just see a relative risk for them being deficient. Yeah, and, and of course, we always talk a lot about nitrogen because like Dan mentioned, this is a nutrient that uh, doesn't really store very well in the soil and we just need to apply every year. But uh, um, we need to remember that last growing season was pretty dry in a lot of places. There is a lot of potential for residual nitrogen in the soil. And I know Brad mentioned this, um, the, the issue of, well, we have supplies this year, even though the prices are high there, the supply is not really a problem. The problem is when people radically change what they are doing. But this is one year where potentially waiting to apply nitrogen could be important because, um, well, first, if you do a soil test, you see how much residual you have. Um, you know, the longer you wait, the better it is because, uh, if you take a soil sample, it gets really wet, then that number could potentially mean very little because you don't know how much nitrogen is available after uh, the potential for loss. But if, if the, the, the spring comes a little bit drier or normal where the potential for nitrogen loss is not very high, you could potentially have quite a bit of nitrogen uh, from the residual of last year still available. And so looking at a side risk application timing could be very, very helpful this year to save on, on the fertilizer application, simply because at that point, when you're doing a side risk, you know what the, the season uh, brought in terms of uh, precipitation and potential for loss. And then you can adjust those rates based on, on what you may have seen in, in a soil test and how the crop is developing. Um, looking at the how green the crop is looking things like that can you know help you determine um whether you need to do a full application or if you can get by with less now we were uh we were uh, privileged to have some data shared with us from minnesota valley testing labs on soil nitrate testing and uh so th these were soil nitrate tests sent off this last fall. So I'm going to presume mostly on the Western side of the state, we really don't recommend uh, taking that test farther East uh, where it is going to be wet. But uh, of those samples that came back, um, only, only about uh, even less than 30% had a zero credit. So more or less 70% of all the samples that came in had some nitrogen credit of at least 35 pounds. And in fact, uh, uh, almost 30%, 28% had a credit of 155 pounds or higher. And so the potential is, is fairly significant. Now, I want to remind everybody, this is not a random sampling of fields. These are fields where testing was done because they already suspected there was going to be nitrate. But the, the bottom line is, is if they thought that it was going to be there, pretty much it was. And so uh, I think farmers do need to be cognizant of that, you know, especially in the you know, we talked about the, the field report in the south central parts of the state 
where we still have a significant moisture deficit, you know, there still could be the opportunity to take a fairly significant credit. Um, the other thing we got uh, for data was uh, Central Consulting did share some data with us that was done as a pre-sugar beet test. Uh, now that was a little bit farther north and, and in, from those results, actually there was much less uh, residual nitrate. And, and, but uh, I think that was probably more relative to um, some different cropping systems and so forth. Um, I guess the, the, the one thing though, I would remind anybody that's looking at taking that soil nitrate test is that the interpretation of those test results are University of Minnesota uh, calibrated results are in parts per million, and you can find the uh, the chart that that goes through what those credits are to interpret that online and our uh, fertilizer recommendations. But I want to remind everybody that that we start at six parts per million, and so um, that's sort of an assumed background level of soil nitrate. And and so if you get the results back in pounds per acre, uh, usually they aren't subtracting that off the top, and so. Uh, that data could be, or that that interpretation, I should say, could be uh, a little bit on the high side. And, and so you'll either want to get, make sure you get the test results back in parts per million, uh, or you're going to need to do some correcting if the results come back in uh, pounds per acre. And so uh, I, don't, I don't think we need to go a lot farther on that, but that's just a little caution uh, relative to the soil nitrate test. Yeah, and that's one of the things I'm concerned about looking at some of the river levels. I mean, if we do get a lot of water, what's going to happen with some of the nitrate concentrations? Because this is kind of setting up probably not as severe as 88 was, but um, you saw, you know, some of the water started to turn back on some higher levels coming through just because there were some credits that could be made and growers are putting full rates on. So I think on the the research side, that's one of the discussions that we're going to have to have at some point is how to account for some of this. And look at it because I think it's better done up in say the Red River Valley and around uh, the Lindsay's area because growers are used to that. Uh, but we get into South Central, you know, maybe southeastern Minnesota, we don't really look at that crediting going on. So it's it's going to be I think an issue of starting to look at you know how do we handle these years and maybe have some flexibility with fall applications. You know, can we take a sample? and then put a, a, a partial rate on and then make some corrections in season or, or what can we do to look at some of this? Because uh, with some of this, you know, Brad, looking at some of that data, it's incredible seeing that roughly a third of them that we're, we're suggesting roughly 150 pound credit, which is, you know, pretty substantial to what you would need for a, going into corn on corn. And um, the other thing that can impact is soybean this year with IDC in some of those areas that are prone, we may see that flare up too because of some of the residual nitrates in the soil um, post-harvest. So that's going to be one of the things that um, is going to be kind of see what's going to happen this year, but um, looking at for the future you know, research side, just seeing whether or not there's some things we need to look at in terms of how to handle some of these years better than we are right now. And, and crediting some of this is going to be, I think, the key to that um, and just seeing how accurate those numbers are. To tack on to this reducing fertilizer costs this spring conversation, uh, something you might want to think about, maybe, is using manure, whether this spring or if fertilizer costs stay high, you know, maybe next fall, maybe something you set up over the summer, that sort of thing. Um, so the number one question that I'm getting right now is about buying and selling manure. And it's both sides that are asking me this. It's both crop farmers and livestock producers. 
And I mean, you don't necessarily need to have manure or be a livestock producer do this. I mean, there's been a lot of new connections between the crop side and the livestock side um, lately, just because of the high fertilizer prices. And it can be kind of a win-win for both sides of it. I mean, the, the crop farmers getting those nutrients from manure, and then, I mean, not to mention all the soil health benefits of manure, while hopefully paying less than what they would for like a commercial fertilizer. Um, and then on the livestock producer side, I mean, they get money for manure that was probably going to need to be applied anyway. Um, and it increases the total land base. They can get more manure out on the land, free up some storage space, that sort of thing. So uh, when I'm talking to people about this, um, there's a couple of things I like to remind them of. So if, especially if you're coming from the crop side of this and you're not really familiar with manure and how all of that works, uh, first of all, you're going to need to know your rules and regulations, you know, because when manure is applied to land that's owned by someone else, not the livestock or manure producer, it's called transferred manure. So that's uh, usually has, you know, its own set of rules. And um, if you're using a commercial applicator, there might be other rules or records that you need to keep. And all of this can vary based on location. So you just got to you know, know what, you're, know what you're dealing with, with your rules and regulations. And then just the inherent things in manure that can sometimes be complicating and confusing. Like I had a guy call me the other day and say, oh, they're planning on putting on way too much manure. The rate's gonna be way too high. But what he didn't understand coming from a crop farmer perspective was that not all of the total nitrogen in manure is plant available that first year. So he thought, whoa, we're just gonna apply a huge amount. But you need to remember that, you know, some of that nitrogen is in the organic form. It's not immediately available. It needs some time to mineralize and become available. Um, but by far the biggest question I'm getting is what should it cost? People are, everyone's wondering about pricing. How much should either they be charging for their manure or how much should I expect to pay? And I mean, that's a tough thing because it's not a standardized arrangement. It's not. Um, it's not set up by any outside entity. So, I mean, there's some loose guidelines that I like to like to spout at people <laughs> and whether they follow them or not is up to you. I mean, haggling skills is all part of this too. But I mean, the biggest guideline is both sides need to feel like they're benefiting. They need to feel like they're getting something out of this value out of the arrangement. Um, here at the um, UMN Extension, we have a manure value calculator that you can go in and it compares your manure nutrients with fertilizer prices, helps you figure out your, your nutrient um, value of your manure. Um, otherwise, I've heard people multiplying the average price of urea and, and, and hydrous um, by the first year available nitrogen in the manure, or some use crop nutrient removal rates to estimate price. Um, but just remember that, I mean, when we talk about the word value, it should be based on the amount by which commercial fertilizer purchases can be reduced. So if you have a field that already has high soil test P and phosphorus, um, yeah, I mean, adding more phosphorus to that field maybe isn't needed or valuable, then, I mean, there's really no value to that manure then. So it all kind of depends on what your field needs, what you have to apply to that, and then um, I always recommend a written agreement versus a handshake agreement, although lots of people have handshake agreements. My folks have a handshake agreement for using manure. 
And um, hopefully these relationships can continue in the future because I see them as really beneficial. What are some key research insights you learned from this past winter's meetings or your own projects? Well, I guess to start off um, and going off of what Chris was talking about uh, in the uh, both nutrient management conference and the nitrogen conference, uh, I think there were a lot of questions about what Chris was saying. You know, what is the, the value of manure for the nutrient content? And um, continuing with economics, um, we had uh, Gary Schnitke from University of uh, Illinois talking at the, I think it was the nutrient management conference in Mankato. And um he he talked about the fact that um while there are some things that are similar in this uh, high price era uh, to what happened back in like 2008 uh, he's forecasting that uh, these these prices may continue high for longer than what we saw that previous cycle of high prices um but then he also talked about the fact that uh the uh, you know corn prices, soybean prices are also going up, and so overall the um, the income that farmers are seeing should not be affected uh, very much. Um, again, I'm I'm not an economist. I'm just kind of repeating what I kind of got out of uh, uh, some of these messages. But uh, it's certainly one thing that we need to remember is that, uh, and some of these things happened before. Uh, fuel prices went up and things like that and all the issues that are happening right now with Ukraine. And uh, we need to remember that fertilizers are a commodity and uh, these prices are affected by what happens not only in the U.S. but worldwide. Uh, you know, I'm actually talking right now from Argentina. I'm here for a, a precision ag conference and um, the the crop is uh, getting ready to to be harvested here, harvested uh, corn and soybeans. Uh, I also noticed there was quite a bit of sorghum in the Pampas region, which called my attention. But uh, but anyway, um, I think we need to keep that in mind. But that that was certainly a lot of what uh, was in people's minds is the the price of fertilizers and how to um, to adjust things or or, or make uh, the best use of that fertilizer. Uh, in terms of um, some projects and, and the things that I've, uh, I've seen this year, well, first of all, last year in a lot of my nitrogen trials, nitrogen was not the limiting factor. It was uh, precipitation. There was plenty of nitrogen. Uh, and in, in many studies, we actually maximized the, the yield with not that much nitrogen, uh, again, because the yields were very low and what was limiting the crop was not nitrogen, it was water. Uh, but interestingly, in some others, I still saw quite a bit of nitrogen needed to optimize the yield, even though the yields were nothing to, to call home about. They were pretty low yields. We're still um, looking at the uh, maximum return to nitrogen. Those values were still high, and I'm still scratching my head a little bit about it because I thought, well, you know, there is plenty of nitrogen to go around. Um, I just don't know why why that may be. Um, the the uh, the one thing also in terms of uh, we were talking earlier about uh, crediting nitrogen from the previous growing season. One thing that I've noticed too in some of the studies where we are looking at uh, basal nitrate uh, nitrate uh, tests is that those values were pretty high. And in drought years, those values are pretty difficult to use because they tend to be really high. And um, one of the potential benefits of that is that uh, 
that nitrogen is in an immobilized form, is in an organic form right now. And so it will be protected from leaching if we start getting wet conditions. So that, that could be a, a good thing uh, for the early part of the spring if it gets wet. Um, but uh, yeah, substantial nitrogen in the crop because in much of uh, Minnesota, we were dry during the, uh, the uh, grain field period and then we started getting rain. And so the, the crop greened up and, and took up a lot of nitrogen, but the sink or the, the grain where that nitrogen will be stored was already passed. So there was no sink for the plant to store that other than in the plant itself, in the green material, in the stalks. And so we have quite a bit of that nitrogen that potentially again, could serve as a um, rarely uh, mineralizable nitrogen source this growing season. Uh, I mentioned earlier too, that uh, in Southwest Minnesota, we didn't really see much leaching uh, until about November. Uh, and even at that point, there was very little leaching that happened in tile drain studies before the soils froze. And, um, and then the, the, the other thing that I've noticed, uh, we had a, a pretty large study that we started last year looking at uh, ESN, polymer coated urea as a nitrogen source. We are comparing that to urea and uh, in different blends and things like that. And last year there was such little potential for nitrogen loss that nitrogen source really had no, no much on it, of an effect. Uh, just whatever nitrogen source you use was, was there. It didn't get lost, so uh, no much problem there. We did see in some sites where um, we we were trying ESN as a split application, which um, you know I started the study and I minimized the number of treatments where we apply ESN as a site as a split application because we know that it is a pretty risky thing and it certainly was this year because. Uh, with the dry conditions, when you apply a product like ESN that needs moisture, um, it takes a while to, to start releasing nitrogen. And so we saw no benefit from doing that. Uh, we will repeat the study this year and hopefully we'll have more of a normal condition to, to evaluate it a little bit better. But uh, that, those are the things from my perspective that I've seen this last growing season and, and during the winter meetings and uh, just as a final thing, one thing that we are doing right now is we are starting a new study where we are evaluating the, um, the PSNT, the pre-citrate nitrate test and the uh, pre-plant nitrate test as a tool um, to determine how useful this tool may be. We have had uh, a number of years where many of us uh, here at the university and others have collected this kind of information. And so we're trying to do a an analysis of all those studies to see what, what we can learn um, and see if, if what we have right now in terms of those recommendations still holds or if we need to make adjustments. Yeah, a couple of things that we saw up in Northwest Minnesota that kind of echo what Fabian saw, we really didn't see a lot of nitrogen moving last year. Uh, we've been monitoring, you know, in the air, in the water and in the soil on um, the drainage plots I have up here. And uh, at, on that study, you know, we're, we're still going through that data, but it looks like similar to what Fabian said, we didn't lose a lot through leaching last year. Uh, and we didn't lose a lot through microbial activity either because it was even too dry for the microbes. 
so I'm really curious to see what uh, we end up seeing this spring. And as we've mentioned earlier, you know, it all depends on what happens these next couple of months, whether that nitrogen is going to stay put or if it's going to leave um, either in the tile drainage or in the air. Um, you know, so I'm really going to be watching that pretty closely this spring. Um, the other project that we've had um, going on that is pretty fun and exciting. Um, this project is with Paolo Pagliari at the Southwest Research and Outreach Center, and we're looking at whether you can inoculate wheat with uh, with bacteria to see if that will fix any nitrogen that will be beneficial to the plant. So we don't really have good data yet because you know we didn't have enough rain as as Fabian pointed out, we didn't really get enough rain to, to maximize our yields last year. So we don't really know how well that's working, but we had some promising looking results. So uh, stay tuned for more information on that. But those are a couple, couple you know, tidbits uh, for everybody to keep an eye on. Will there be any changes made to the fertilizer guidelines in 2022? So right now, um, looking at reevaluating, we've been looking at the end rate guidelines and I've got an update ready to go. I mean, at the time of this recording, I'm not sure if the online corn end rate calculator has been updated or not, but um, we're looking at that, um, seeing an increase generally in the amount of nitrogen recommended. Um, the, the change hasn't been that much and kind of where we're at with fertilizer prices if you did a fall application somewhere around the 0.1 price ratio, if you're kind of within that window, you're probably pretty close to where we're at right now. Because I think right now when I calculate things out, we're looking at anywhere from about a 0.15 to a 0.18 price ratio. And we know that, um, you know, the recommended rates do significantly drop off when we, we well, I shouldn't say significantly, but there is a, there is a difference with that 0.15 versus where we're at with the, the 0.10. So That'll be the main thing. Um, we're working on updating the actual print publication as well. Um, realize if you look at the print publication versus the calculator, the numbers are going to be slightly different because I do round to the nearest five with a lot of those. Um, I do that because, you know, a couple pounds here and there doesn't make a big difference. And it's generally within the profitability window with that. Um, I am making a, a small change in terms of how we're reporting the data in the print publication. I'm dropping the the 0.05 and the 0.2, because generally we don't hit those points and added in um, a 0.075 and a 0.12 to kind of give more kind of recommendations in the range of where we're going to generally be with that. Although again, yeah, this year looking at, we're the spring, we're looking at closer to the 0.18. So that'll be the main change coming forward. Um, we are working on some, some of the corn data right now with potassium. I don't think we'll have any updates to our guidelines um, in the spring. Uh, the main thing I will say, uh, just interesting looking at some of what we're seeing with some of this mineralogy work we're doing that um, we upped the recommendations a few years back with a critical level closer to 200 part per million. But if you're in the, the far Southeast on some of the silt loam soils, um, you know, seeing those where, you know, probably closer to 160, what the old recommendations were. And that's, that's kind of what I'm looking at right now is partitioning out the uh, the guidelines into the three three main classes, which would be a coarse textured soils, some of the the silt loams that would have kind of more you know medium what I'd call a cation exchange capacity, and then the high clay soils that would be you know more relevant to what we have out there with our guidelines now. So that probably will be looking at more towards fall. I'm hoping to wrap that work up here in the summer. So those would be the main thing. I mean, we're doing a lot of overhaul right now in the publications, but a lot of them are 
mostly cosmetic. Um, I've been making some minor changes here and there, stuff that didn't get addressed with some of the last updates to like the grass pasture recommendations and a few of the, the other minor recommendations around. So those will be the main things going forward. Um, looking at the data, it's kind of interesting with going through that end rate calculator. I've been tracking yearly economic optimum nitrogen rate trends. And last couple of years, seeing the numbers come down for continuous corn, we were seeing a, a steady uptick in the, the amount recommended, amount needed um, yearly starting at about 2000. But if you look at around 2014, there was a slight downtick and then the last couple of years, you know, so these dry years, you know, likely having some impact on the situations and uh, looking at some of Fabian's data, interesting seeing some of those sites that were really low yielding that were struggling to put on yield, mean, being situations where seeing a response out to some of the maximum end rates applied with that. So, you know, it isn't, you know, kind of getting back to that yield versus optimal end rate, that tie-in really isn't there with that. Um, so, you know, really stressing a lot. Of, and that'll be the main thing. I think will be the corn end rate guidelines. Just expect some changes here. Um, I'm hoping here in April, you know, before spring field work really starts picking up to, to get some of that stuff out there. Any last words from the group? Um, I would just say um, that, uh, you know, every growing season uh, brings its own, its own challenges. And uh, this one will be one where I think, um, Paying attention to the weather, again, speaking more from a nitrogen standpoint, it will be really important. Uh, I think there, there could be a lot of potential there to save on fertilizer if the conditions are right. And, and so we normally are trying to get everything done as soon as we can, but this is a year I think where a little patience could be could pay big dividends uh, if if we if we see that uh, we don't get a huge amount of rain that um, leaches the, the 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 nitrogen, and then if we do have a lot of rain, um, the biggest concern I have is in terms of uh, the nitrates that we may see in in the river floating down to the Mississippi. There could be quite a bit of of nitrogen uh, flowing that way if it gets wet. So. We'll, we'll see what happens. The other thing I'd throw in there too, I mean, these types of years, we always get a lot of questions on some of these lower costs, these little products to add in to try to increase nutrient availability. And, you know, looking at, you know, the, the cost of them being relatively low, the benefit generally of these isn't really high, if at all any benefit from some of these products. So that's one of the things you have to watch out for is, you know, you're, cut, you're trying to cut back costs on some of your base fertility programs, and then looking at spending money on some of these things where you could have invested that in fertilizer, which likely would have been the more you know, prudent um, you know, way to spend some of the dollars. So that's just one of the things to consider, you know, interesting, you know, Lindsay, you're looking at biologicals, some of the stuff we're looking at too, biologicals, that's been the hot button topic um, with some of these. And you just got to watch and see how much you're spending uh, on some of these things, because Really where I look at a lot of these things is consistency to see if they work over a large number of environments, because obviously they're being sold to everybody out there in Minnesota. And um, I haven't seen anything that is generally working that um, consistently like we see with fertilizer. I mean, we can pretty much predict where particularly P and K, we're going to see some benefit. Um, some of these other things, it's these biologicals, it's, it's really unpredictable on some of these things. So I just, just would be careful 
on that. And you got to kind of ask yourself if I'm not willing to invest a little bit more in fertilizer, which may make me more money, why invest in some of these things that, um, you know, aren't necessarily tested and proven on, on all acreages. So that's the big thing. We'll see what happens with some of that, but you get a lot of these extenders that, you know, tend to come in and say a couple bucks here and you can replace a lot of your fertilizer. And, you know, really it's a lot of times you could probably just cut back on fertilizers. Um, and you, you may be a bigger and economic benefit instead of spending more money on a product that, um, may not necessarily do anything. I think I'd add to that, Dan, we've gotten a few questions related to nitrification inhibitors and whether uh, because of commodity and fertilizer prices, we should be looking at that. I guess just a reminder uh, on what those products do. They just simply uh, slow down the conversion of ammonium to nitrate. They really don't have an impact on the, the nitrogen itself as far as its overall uh, availability. They don't make it more uh, more available to the crop or anything of that sort, and they do wear off. Uh, particularly relative to soil temperature. So the farther we get into the growing season, uh, the, the shorter the window is that they're going to actually function and therefore the odds of, of losing nitrogen uh, in that period of time are actually quite small. Uh, and so from that standpoint, uh, under most circumstances, we don't look at uh, re recommending use of nitrification inhibitors for spring use. Uh, occasionally we'll get people will suggest that maybe they should use them in coarse textured soils, but I guess we would also remind uh, everybody that uh, those are also the circumstances where we uh, recommend doing split applications, multiple split applications in a lot of circumstances that the, the nitrification inhibitors uh, may help a little bit, but they're not nearly as good as just simply not having the nitrogen out there in the first place if you got sandy soils. And so uh, remember that that's really the, the preferred method of management in those situations. All right, that about does it for the, this episode of the Nutrient Management Podcast. We'd like to thank the Agricultural Fertilizer Research and Education Council, AFRAC, for supporting the podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>